0: Well, good morning. This is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. <clears throat> As I was preparing to leave home today, I, um, I checked in with Fox News just to see what was going on. Any you ever seen the TV program River Monsters? guy goes out all over the world and catches these exotic fish. Well, apparently they discovered a castaway on a desert island off the coast of Australia while filming this TV show. And uh, they said they found this man who was on this island. Uh, he would said his last prayer. He was preparing to die and meet his maker. They were uh, driving along in their, in their boats, filming their TV show, and they discovered a guy with no clothes running out of a cave, waving his hands. He'd been stranded for 60 hours, about three days. They said his body wasn't ready for all that he had, in, he had uh, endured, and his condition was quite serious, but, uh, but he did recover. Well, this morning we're going to talk about another man running naked from the caves. We're going to talk about a madman, a miracle, and a missionary. And our text today is found in the Gospel according to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 35. This story is told in three of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke. We begin in chapter 8 of the gospel that bears their witness. And here in Mark 4:35, we uh, will begin uh, with our text this morning. Well, each of these gospel accounts adds a little bit more to the story we're going to share today. And today we share what God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen to disclose in the truth, in the life, and teachings of his son, Jesus Christ. And he does that through his written word through the Bible that you have in your hands today. It's in this way we here at Beaverdam, although we're separated from this actual event in history, we here at Beaverdam can come and cross the many miles, the 2,000 years of history, and come to the feet of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and learn from him just as the apostles did when God walked the earth as a man. This morning we're going to look at a madman, a miracle, and a missionary. If you have your Bible, I hope that you do, will you turn with me to Mark chapter 4, where we'll begin in verse 35. As you find Mark 4, 35, let me suggest we should never open our Bible in silence, but always with the sound of thanksgiving and prayer. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for the opportunity to come together in this wonderful place and to share the common fellowship we have with your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Dear Lord, as we open our hearts and our minds this morning, we ask that the words we hear be your own, and that we may come to know you better, and that we may come to share the miracle of the story of Jesus Christ in a dark and desperate world. Father, thank you for opening our hearts today. Thank you for the gift of your word we hold in our hands. Thank you for the gift of your word we hold in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, will you stand with me in honor of God's word? We'll begin in Mark 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's inerrant word. Please be seated. Well, every good story that we share begins by setting the scene, doesn't it? It was a day just like any other day. Fairy tales begin with once upon a time... Novels, at least the great ones, begin with it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. But historical gospel narratives begin by placing the story in a specific time. Mark places this story on that day. As we read from here, we're told this event took place on a specific day, at a specific time, and at a specific time. The Bible tells us that on that day, Jesus and his disciples began by walking through a field and picking ears of grain for breakfast. Later on, on that day, he would heal a man with a withered hand, and then he would heal another with a demon who was also blind and mute. And ordinarily, these were innocent ventures. But on that day was the Sabbath. And on that day, the Pharisees were watching him and hoped that they might catch him breaking their Sabbath rules. You see, in their eyes, walking on the Sabbath was prohibited, as was gleaning or harvesting or healing. Jesus, they claimed, had violated the Sabbath. But Jesus knew more about the Sabbath Indeed, he knew more about the law than all of the Pharisees combined. Jesus confronted the Jews with the law by teaching them from the scriptures. But their hearts were hardened, and they were plotting ways to kill him. Jesus concluded by telling them the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. But the self-righteous Pharisees drew their own conclusion. They said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Rather than rejoicing in his miracles, rather than recognizing his redemptive work, the Pharisees said, this man is from hell. And from that day forward, Jesus would speak to them only in parables. When his disciples asked, why parables all of a sudden? Jesus said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The parables were given in judgment to hide the truth from hardened hearts. The parables were meant to confound and confuse the unrighteous. Later that day, Jesus would gather his disciples together and explain the meaning of the parables to them. And when he had finished teaching, when they had finished their discussion, when they had finished the lesson with his disciples, on that day, they joined Jesus in a boat, and Jesus said, let's cross over to the other side. Well, in today's way of thinking, we would call this a field trip. Classroom studies have ended for the day, and now as the day grew longer, it was time to cross over and renew our studies in the field on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, the Sea of Galilee measures only seven miles wide. It's 13 miles long, but what it lacks in size, it makes up with a sudden propensity for violent storms. And the other side was a place where no one in Jesus' day would ever want or ever choose to go. The other side of the Sea of Galilee was the Decapolis, ten Greek cities, the land of the Gentiles. No Jew, sane or otherwise, would ever think of going over to the other side. But Jesus, the perfect Jew, indeed the perfect man, directed his disciples to get into the boat and cross over to the other side. Sometimes we're called to serve him in places and circumstances that are not of our own choosing. You might think that since this was a mission trip, their trip was serene and uneventful. Cabin service was adequate. All slept soundly through their voyage. Arriving at their destination on that day, luggage intact, relaxed, refreshed, and ready to learn from their master. But that's not the story we heard today. Even a casual reading of the story today tells us this was anything but a serene journey. The only one sleeping, at least for a time, was Jesus. While en route to their despised destination, the disciples encountered a violent storm. Fearing imminent destruction and death, they woke Jesus by asking, Don't you care that we're going to die? There's a question for the ages. Asking Jesus if he cared they were going to die? When in fact it was Jesus who would soon give his life as a ransom for many, including all but one in the boat with them that day. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus rises from his sleep, silences the wind, stills the turbulent seas, brings a great calm to what moments before was a threatening storm, and rather than being thankful, rather than recognizing the miracle that took place right before their eyes, they're terrified. And they say, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. In the 20 verses that follow, God draws a picture of the Gentile word at enmity with God. And he draws a picture of a Savior who loves them so that he would venture over to the other side. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Then they came to the other side, the region of Gerasenes. If you're reading from a text other than the English Standard Version that I'm using today, your Bible might say Gadarennes, Gergasenes, Gerasa, Gergasa, Gadara, You see the geographic story of this location had been the subject of commentary and conflict for centuries. It seems the region of the Gerasenes was some like the region of Alaska or Texas or Metropolitan Beaver Dam. The Bible says they left from Capernaum and we know where that was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee and they went to the other side but here's the problem. For some, for many centuries, no village or port could be identified as being the site of this story. The closest known city was Garassa, some five miles inland. Over time, many nonbelievers used this story as their proof that the Bible was wrong. And they scoffed, if this story is true, then those pigs must have had a five-mile run. The Bible, they claimed, was therefore mistaken. The Bible, they claimed, therefore had errors. And if this event was true by virtue of the physical evidence, no city by the shore, it must therefore be a myth. But then, in 1970, a bulldozer cutting a road along the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee uncovered the ruins of an ancient city right where the Bible said it was. Imagine that. Next time you hear some brilliant scientist telling you that life is a cosmic accident or the rocks of the earth are too, so, too old to support the biblical claims of creation, remember that God is inerrant and so is his word. The book on your lap today contains no error. And what we perceive as contradiction is simply another indication of our fallen nature. God does not need to conform his word to match what we think we see or who we think we are. Throughout the Bible, nations are often depicted as beasts. We read about the beasts of Babylon, the beasts of Meadow Persia. These are groups of people who lack any redemptive value or morals. They're self-centered. They're destructive organisms that consume more than they produce. They generate more heat than light and they leave their world with nothing more than smoldering cinders to mark their memories, which almost always include mayhem and madness and murder. One, one famous theologian has quipped, every history book should contain the citation, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, the beast in this story is the Gentile nation. And the madman is the picture of the classic Gentile. All mission activity has until now been centered on the Jews. But now, on that day, Jesus crosses over to the other side. This is the first incursion of God into the Gentile world. This is the first missionary expedition. Thirteen Jewish men, twelve disciples, and their teacher who happens to be the Son of God. Coming ashore, they're encountered by a madman. And in the text that follows, we see a picture of this tortured soul. It's a picture of the world under the dominion of darkness. This man is conquered by the devil, he's possessed. Jesus says, What's your name? And he says, Legion. Legion is a term from the Roman Empire. We are many. A Roman legion was comprised of 5,600 battle-ready troops. 5,600 enemy troops. If your nation was occupied or possessed by a Roman legion, your nation was under their dominion. The legion had taken over and you were no longer able to govern yourself. If your soul is possessed by a legion of demons, you are hopelessly conquered And that is what Satan had done to this man. That is what Satan has done to the world. But God, aren't those great words? But God has a plan from eternity past. In Genesis 3.15, just seven verses after Adam and Eve decide to dine without him, God gives a promise of hope in his condemnation Of the serpent Satan. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. This man is possessed by the devil, but through it all there is the echo of God's promise he will crush your head. The Bible sees us as fallen because we refuse to submit to the sovereign word of God. When we look at the image of the madman, we see the reflection of everyone who lives apart from God. There are only two kinds of people in this world, the saved and the mad. Well, this man is conquered, and this man is dead. He lives in the tombs. The Bible teaches us that without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Now the meaning of the Greek word for dead that the Apostle Paul used here in Ephesians 2 is dead. The man is not sick. The man is not impaired. He is dead. And being dead, he has no ability in mind or will or intellect to come to God. This man is dead. This man is dangerous. He hurts people. They have to shackle him. They have to put him in chains because he hurts people. Nothing they can do can fix him. All they can do is try with apparently little success to subdue him. He's dangerous. He has no moral agent to keep him from mauling and maiming even those who try to minister to him. Think about this. Man, when left to his own standards, is inherently dangerous. Man is the only creature on earth that will willingly self-destruct. He will hurt his children. He will hurt his spouse. He will hurt his neighbor. He will even hurt himself. Oh, this man is dangerous. This man is irremediable. There's no power on earth that can save him. Doctors with their drugs and medicines, psychologists with their potence and symptoms social workers with their groups and their gatherings. All the programs of the world are powerless to confront the demonic possession of the prince of darkness. This is what it means to be irremediable, impossible, to cure or be put right. And look, this man is without peace. Night and day he cries out for deliverance. He's never at rest. The demons within him are a constant aggravation. His mind, soul, body, and spirit are always in a state of agitation. Man was not made for this. Man was made for God. Pascal said there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, and man tries to fill it with created things, but it can only be filled by the Creator. St. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls are ever restless until they find peace in thee. Yet man craves sin and sinful acts. In the death grip of sin, we can do nothing but sin. Man is without peace. This man is in pain. He's screaming. He's alone. He's absent from God. He's absent from his fellow man. In his madness, he's absent from himself. He's bleeding. His sores go untreated. And his wounds are more deadly, more serious than physical hurt. They're emotional and spiritual, and they cut to the very marrow of his dead soul. This man is in pain. This man is naked. He has no shame. No social awareness, no self-respect, no clothing to protect him from the elements. He seeks shelter naked among the tombs. And in his madness, he's unable to find shelter from the storms within or from the storms without. No one can come around him. He set himself apart by virtue of his mad behavior. Well, the man who's going to crush his head has just landed on the beach. And the madman, although he's possessed by a legion of demons, he does something all the others with Jesus that day did not. The madman recognized Jesus. Mankind cannot stop him. But this guy, the one getting out of the boat, can do something. This guy, the one with the 12 greenish looking seasick disciples, he fixes things, he makes them new, he makes them right. And Satan knows this guy can and will kill him. So the madman possessed and tormented by a legion of demons goes about attacking anyone in his path. But now seeing Jesus from a distance, he runs and kneels down before him. He kneels before the power of the universe who he immediately recognized as the Christ. He kneels before God, his creator. He kneels before the Son of the Most High God, Whom he knows is the only one who can defeat him and save this man from his madness. Knowing the certainty of his defeat, Satan tries to negotiate terms and he's not quiet about it. And crying with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, do not torment me. Who's the greatest theologian in the Bible? Well, theology is the study of God's word. William Perkins, a Puritan theologian, who for some reason is one of my favorites, said theology is the science of living blessedly forever. The science of living blessedly forever. The study of God in his word. Well, certainly Jesus in his humanity is the greatest theologian in the Bible, but there is another that has spent a lot of time in his word, the great deceiver, Satan. You see, you have to know the truth in order to deceive others and prevent them from finding it. You have to be a successful liar. You have to know the truth you're steering others away from. Well, Legion recognized Jesus as the son of the Most High God, even his disciples and the Pharisees, the most learned people on the planet, had not yet made that discovery. Remember, Just a few minutes ago, they were asking, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Yet legion says, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And in perfect hypocrisy, the demon who was content in long tempting this poor bad man's soul begs Jesus, Don't torment me. Mark 5, verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him sending, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what had happened And they came to see Jesus and they saw the demon possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. 2,000 demon possessed pigs begin their downhill journey to destruction, perhaps slowly at first, rushing down the steep bank to their ultimate demise. That's the way it is with mankind, seed of the devil apart from Christ. If you don't believe this, just look at tonight's news. You can see the downward, ever-quickening path to destruction that we are running on today. What was once condemned is now celebrated, and what is now condemned is the failure to celebrate that which was once condemned. The Bible tells us there are grave consequences for this behavior that separates us from the love and fellowship of God. As we continue to rewrite the history our children must endure, let us remember the consequences of of celebrating sin. Paul said, though they know not God's righteous decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practiced them. The picture the Bible gives us of the madman is chilling. But the promises of God's endures. And now in verse 15, we see the miracle of his redemption. No longer is he chained and crying and cutting himself with stones. Now we see him sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. He's seated. He's at rest. What is the source of this rest? His rest is in the Lord Jesus who offers this rest to all. Jesus said, come to me all of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See Jesus fixes things. He didn't just make the madman feel better. He fixed him. Jesus not only makes him straight, he also sets him straight in his right mind, seated, content, and at rest. What sociology could not do, Jesus did. What psychology could not do, Jesus did. What philosophy could not do, Jesus did. What all of humanity cannot do, Jesus does. The madman is what happens when Satan rules. The miracle is what happens when God reigns. Look at verse 16 with me. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Well, we want religion. We want to be treated honestly and with dignity. We want fair play. We want a balanced playing field. But we do not want redemption. We want to play by our own rules. We don't want to have to change our ways. And so we buy into the argument that the world is changing and we have to change along with it. We have to be on the right side of history so we can reinterpret the commandments and rule out the parts of the Bible that are now irrelevant misunderstood, or no longer apply. We, like this nation of pig farmers, are also always more concerned with the cost of pigs than we are for the spiritual welfare of our fellow man. The cost of the 2,000 pigs that were destroyed that day must have been significant. So significant that many scholars... Believers and non-believers alike have debated whether or not it was fair for Jesus to have destroyed the pigs just to save one man. The cost, they claim, was too great. But God knows the cost of a human soul. He knows because he paid the infinite price for yours. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. As we watch the world around us march into perdition, remember the cost of your soul and who it is that paid the price. Paul again teaches us, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And here's the miracle of the gospel. So marvelous that Paul wrote and spoke about it for most of his life. In the third chapter of Titus, he reminds us of the miracle again. And as we share this text, think about the story we're sharing today and tell, tell if you can't see the miracle of the gospel. to the hope of eternal life. Well, as with all good news, this story ends with the beginning of another. The madman, the miracle, the mission, and the message. Jesus is getting into the boat and here this little guy is already sitting in the back waiting to go with him. Listen to how our story ends. Mark 5:18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed kept begging to be with him, but he would not let him. Instead, he told him, go back home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis just how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. It's interesting, of the three requests that day, two asking for him to leave and one asking for him to stay, only the first two, the one from the demons and the pig farmers, were granted. The new believer, the madman made whole, his request was denied. Instead, Jesus said, go back home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you. And that's the way it is with men and God. Jesus will never impose himself on anyone who does not want him to be with them. He's not an uninvited guest like Legion was. It's quite common the Son of the Most High God is asked to leave man alone. We see it in our own culture, don't we? We teach it in our public schools. We proclaim it in our public places. And now by the power of government, we the people are begging Jesus to depart from our region. But for those of us who are called by his name, for those of us who surrender our lives to him, we make ready to go wherever he may send us. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. Sometimes they get what they wish. The demons got their wish when they entered the pigs, and the pig farmers got their wish when they sent him away. But by his grace, he left another behind. A saved man, seated, clothed, and in his right mind. We don't even know his name. But we do know he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And we know that of everyone who heard him, they were amazed. Sometimes by his grace, the answer to our prayers is no. No. And sometimes our mission field isn't the back of a boat or in a land far away. Sometimes he calls us to go home, to go out, and to proclaim just how much he has done for you. The madman made missionary by the miracle of Christ went out into the mission field as his Lord commanded. And he had a message of what God had done for him. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us how it fared. But it does leave us with a clue. It's not by coincidence that earlier on that day, the first parable Jesus shared with his disciples was the parable of the sower. And here in the text before us this morning, we see a man from the Decapolis who was sent to sow in the mission field of the Decapolis. And in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31, Sometime after what happened on that day, Jesus returned to the Decapolis, but this time his reception was different. Something had happened there, something neither the madman nor the twelve with him in the boat that day would ever have imagined. Mark 7, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven and he sighed and he said to them, Ephedah, that is be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And there you have it, the madman, the miracle, the missionary. This is an overall story of God's grace, in which he gives hope and abundance to anyone who believes in Jesus, the Son Of the Most High God. None of this would have happened if God had not chosen to send His Son into the world. None of this would have happened if His Son had not chosen to go over to the other side. Jesus has not only told us about the way, but He has come and shown us the way. Now we are called to follow Him, to go and proclaim the things that God has done for you. We all know the hymn Amazing Grace, written by a madman who, like the missionary in our story today, was saved by Christ. Like most good hymns, we can sing the first verse or two without having to look at our hymnals or the words on the walls. But way down toward the end, at the part where we get tired of singing and start humming, John Newton shared these words. If you're standing on the other side this morning, And hear God calling you to come and sit with him. These words are for you. The Lord has promised good to me. My word his hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures.